Welcome to Gold with Jeanette Schneider, nuggets of inspiration for a bigger, badder, more purposeful life. Each week we share wisdom, insights, and gold from those living their very best lives. After 23 years in finance and a fancy SVP title, I left corporate America to advocate for women and girls in life, love, the boardroom, and the marketplace. Now the CEO of my own media company, my goal is to change the world for my daughter and her friends. My first book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, dropped late 2018 and is based on what women wish they would have known when they were girls. This is purposeful content, big conversations, and a safe place for us to share our gold and our dreams for the future. We record every week from the sound studio at The Space LV. Norma Bastidas is a single mother, a survivor of sexual violence and human trafficking. An ultra-athlete, she broke the Guinness World Record for longest triathlon after swimming, biking, and running 3,762 miles from Cancun, Mexico to Washington, D.C., a known human trafficking route. She views athletic feats as metaphors for the incredible trials faced every day by the survivors of sexual violence. Norma's mission is to educate and empower, demonstrating to the world that one's past does not dictate one's future, and prove that everyday people are capable of making extraordinary strides in the fight against the problems facing the world today. Norma talks about her son, who lost his vision very quickly due to a progressive disease, facing her past, and advocating for self and others through running. We also dig into mental health and why it's so important that we normalize the conversation around mental health diagnoses and the stigma and the unfortunate labels. This woman is strength, grit, and determination. Let's dig in. I am so honored to have with me today, Norma Bastidas. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you being willing to share your story with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. We um so we have a mutual friend in Alia Lanius and Alia is creating something called EmpowerCon where we are both going to speak. So I can't wait to to meet in person. But when she and I were chatting about what we're going to accomplish with EmpowerCon, she was telling me your story and what you've accomplished. And I, I wanted to have you on the show to talk to you. Um, you are a Guinness World Record holder for longest triathlon after swimming, biking, and running 3,762 miles from Cancun to Washington, D.C. First, oh my God. <laughs> I am so amazed by you. And I've, I've checked out your Instagram and I've kind of been, you know, fangirling you a little bit because the amount of of just pure adrenaline and desire and passion to be able to accomplish something. Can you tell me what were the, what were the kind of uh, the ideals that really created this desire to break that record? You know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm definitely the accidental adventurer. Um, I had, you know, if you had told me 12 years ago when I was a single parent raising two small children in Canada, and, you know, like I went back to university and, and you know, like my whole focus was to provide for my kids that, uh, you know, that I was going to walk away and that I was going to become an adventure, a record holder. I would have laughed, mm. you know, because I was, I mean, like I said, it was, I wasn't athletic for one thing. I was just overwhelmed and trying to raise my kids and that was my focus. But, uh, you know, exactly somewhere down the line, um, I found myself in a, in, in a vulnerable 
position again because um, you know I was so busy, you know, trying to provide for my two kids that uh, my oldest son started to lose his sight. He has a condition that's called Conrad dystrophy that is a genetic condition that it is uncured and is progressive. That it doesn't have a a, a cure and is progressive. And you know, I had a very hard time. Um, I lost my job. I just couldn't focus at the level that it was required for my position. And, uh, you know, and it, it just kind of, I, I had a very hard time doing the, the things that I needed to do to provide for my kids and to, you know, I think when whenever the local churches uh, call me and deliver a food hamper, that's really one I I really had to face everything mm. that had happened in the past and that I was going to face in the future because it, it kind of like I kept starting over so many times as a child. And um, and I recognize the irony and the fact that my son was 11 years old. I was a single parent and what that meant of being invulnerable, uh, being an immigrant and, and not being able to provide. I was, you know, sexually abused for the first time when I was 11 years old and, and my dad had just died and my mom became a single parent and she was so busy providing. And he just kind of woke me up and to say, you know what, no more surviving mm. because I am breaking the cycle from now and forever. Mm-hmm. Like it just, you know, it was a, a conscious decision that he woke me up and it's like, no, it's not, go- history is never going to repeat itself, not while I am alive. So, and that's kind of a conscious, like, what do I need? I needed to be present, but to be present for my kids, I needed to confront all those things because I needed to just kind of figure it out what were the factors that, that allow those things to happen. So it wasn't easy. And first and foremost, I needed to advocate for my son. He was 11. He was, even though it is Canada, even though it's is a condition that is understood, there were still a lot of factors that they were preventing him from going back to school and to lead a normal life. So I started demanding things that they were his right. Just because it's the law doesn't mean that it gets enforced. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of teachers forgot that he needed to sit on the front because he couldn't see the blackboard or, you know, things like that. And I kept reminding them and the, and I understand the teachers are overwhelmed and they're, you know, like, you know, I'm sorry, but there's a divorce, there's this and there, you know, and I was just like, no, but it is your job. And he's only 11. So I kept demanding those things. No more. I, 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 I wasn't going to, you know, to, you know, to allow those things to happen and say, you know, do your best. It was like, this is what you need to do. So that taught me something too, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, you actually do not fall away when the world starts to push and you take as much space as possible. Right. And, and, and the running, it just became a way for me to process because it wasn't, it was impossible for me to be in a vulnerable position to try to, to bring every awareness of everything that had happened to navigate it better and not being affected by it. So I will, you know, my mom came from Mexico to give me a hand while I was looking for another job and, and, you know, like the endless amounts of uh, things that I needed to do for my son, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind was incredible at helping me navigate the, the, the new the new reality of my son. So, you know, all those things and running, it just became a, a, I just couldn't sleep three, you know, three, four a.m. I would just lace up and go for a run because I didn't want my kids and my mom to hear me crying. So it's like, oh, I need to go for a run. And my mom was like, yeah, you need a boyfriend. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> 
I was like, that was the farthest, but it was, you know, like she in her head is like, yes, you know, that was our salvation. But, but it was, it, I, what I noticed is that unlike what had happened in the past that I, I just needed a, 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 a brief respite or, or escape, it was that in, in like addiction or, or, you know, it's not like I've had an addiction as much as I rely on, on drinking. Mm-hmm. to get me through things. And it was, you know, something that it didn't help me. It actually made things worse because it is a depressant. So running actually made me feel better. I did come home and felt like, yes, we can do this, right? And that's really how it happened. Uh, the, the running just became because I, I needed that. I needed something that I could control because my life was out of control. I kept losing jobs. My son would have great days and then terrible days. So I couldn't control those things. The rate of his progression, he went from being visually impaired to losing his sight quite rapidly. The next year was the, the most traumatic for him. Um, and he, and, and you know, but he did, he did great. We discussed it. He went back to school and he was handling everything with so much grace that I thought I'm going to run a marathon and um, just because those, you know, things that you were afraid of before, you know, once you expand your your the, your comfort zone, once you you lean into this comfort, the your ability to to you know to take on things that where you were afraid before expands. So you know, I was never a runner. People always told me you're born a runner, you're a terrible runner. <laughs> and then a friend of mine that you know she used to go for a run. And I used to tag along so I could talk to her. She was training for Boston. She said, if you qualify, I'll take you. And that's all I needed. I needed one little gleam of hope, something that I could focus, that it was, that I could concentrate, that I could focus. And I did. I qualified for Boston on my first marathon within six months. And that taught me a lesson. I was like, how many, how, how much ability, how much ability do I have that I'm not giving myself do uh, you know that not giving myself the the permission just because I believe what people that the limits that people told me that I have. So I went for it and I ran my first uh, ultra marathon within eight to nine months right after my first marathon as a fundraiser for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. And instead of three hundred dollars, I fundraised thirty five hundred. Mm-hmm. But it was actually people pledging me not to go, and that just set a fire. I was like, how dare you! How dare you tell me these things when I have just, just, you know, my son went back to school and he was thriving and, uh, you know, and I was like, and you, you know, this is a physical, what I just, you know, overcame or as a family was so much better. So I, I went for it. I just, um, I did. And I was like, you know what, you, you, I mean, I appreciate but you need to let me find my limits from now on. And people became incredibly supportive. And that also allowed me to be an ad, an, an, ad, an activist mm-hmm. because people weren't afraid to call me, said, how are you doing? How's your son? Because there was, a, you know, before they didn't know how to. And this time it was like, how's your training? How's your son? And it became a celebration of overcoming things. That's really and beautiful. Not, yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, that's really beautiful. And I, I appreciate the fact that like from that time on, every race you've run has been to advocate for something. There has yes. been something or someone that you've wanted to support through your running, which it sounds like was a place of, of grace and renewal and um, accomplishment for yourself. But you're also creating this space for other people to be uplifted. Yes, I, I found it that I, I didn't need 
the, you know, I didn't need the attention. I really wasn't something that it was, it was making me happy, you know, in terms of having all the attention of me and you're amazing and look at you. And I was like, oh, I'm just doing it because I have to, mm -hmm. you know, like I really, it, it made no difference if nobody was watching or everybody was watching. Like it was just something that I needed to do because it was, it was, now I understand it was something that I needed for my mental health. Mm -hmm. Right. I love it. And I think it's just something I, I watched myself going from. Yeah. Yes. From that, I got I noticed from being, you know, not being able to get out of bed to being excited to get out of bed or, you know, this time instead of waking up, you know, you know, I suffer some, either I sleep too much or I can't sleep at all. Like mm -hmm. I have two patterns and this time it was the excitement. It was like, oh, I need to go for a run and being excited. So it was something, but it was, I couldn't, I couldn't stop people because we all need, we all need somebody who's struggling that seems to be fighting that we need to just hang on to say, take me with you. And I, I just noticed, I mean, I started doing it publicly because people were fundraising and there was a lot of people that they were like, I'm struggling too. And I'm coming along for the ride. And it is incredibly humbling to see like, I am your leader, but I was like, okay, I found myself in this position. If I give you comfort, then please, because I do understand how lonely it can get. So I that's what I started doing it for all the reason, because I really, at the end, I was just like, please don't put me on pedestal because I still don't know if at the end of this journey, I will be able to finish it or not. It was just something that I needed to do. And I, and it worked. That's beautiful. Is there any significance to the route from Cancun to Washington, DC? Yes. Once, uh, I mean, my son now is, you know, he's, he's an incredibly handsome 24 year old and he is fine. He is, he's a, a visual artist now. And, uh, so once he was about 18 and I had done the seven, seven, seven run for sight, seven ultra seven content in seven months, he just kind of looked at me. He's like, mom, I'm actually okay. I, I do know that I'm going blind, but it doesn't bother me. I have a guide dog. I'm happy. And I thought, okay, I can't, I have to switch. I can't continue on this journey if you know i don't want him to think that he needs to be cured and he is now old enough to advocate for himself so i had a platform i've done an, uh, a beautiful documentary that is called extraordinary mothers uh for the oprah winfrey network and um so i had this platform that he was as a public figure and as an athlete and that's when i decided to use it for for you know you know, like if I was going to continue, it's like, what do, what can I do? And it was, I made the decision to talk about my past of sexual violence and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I did run from, from Vancouver to do that, to do the transition of being the mother of a child who's going blind and being the woman who had been sexually assaulted. Um, I ran from Vancouver, Canada, all the way to Mazatlan, Mexico, and uh, wrote a book that is called Running Home, A Journey to End Violence. And it's the first time I spoke about it. Now, the human trafficking part was something that it was. Uh, and I mean, we're talking about 2012, the Me Too movement, none of that, nothing of that was happening. But you're still, when you open up to sexual violence, especially human trafficking and, and the con connotations of prostitution, I, it was a, the backlash was immediately in terms of like, it was your fault. Mm. You wanted it, you're trash. And I, the more, the more they pushed, you know, push into the, like the shame and start to feel the more I wanted to take as much space as possible. And I thought, you know what, 
it is still relevant for me to talk about it because if as an athlete, as a respective person, and, uh, you know, I am feeling like I'm feeling all these rejection and all these pushback means that it's still happening and victims are still being treated like this. So I thought this is what I'm going to do. I needed to do something that it was bold, that it was something that had not been done. I had been running long distance for about six years. So I needed something that people pay attention. So they were, you know, like they were saying, why do you run this country? But People were used to the fact that if I said that I was going to run from one place to another, that I was going to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. So I needed to people to pay attention. So I looked for for record and I found the record for the world longest triathlon that it had been set 20 years prior. And it was done by an Australian man. And I couldn't swim. I looked and I was like, oh, no, it's 26 <laughs> miles. There's no way. But it was something. The more I try to sell the project, the more they were saying, I am not aligning myself with prostitution. The more I became focused that that's what I needed to do. And uh, I needed to change the perception of who a victim of human trafficking. It could have happened to anybody under the same circumstances. Anybody. Right. So that's where I just kind of became focused. And then I decided to follow a human trafficking route from Cancun to Washington, D.C. to make it a bike because uh, the, the, the organization that I was working with operated in Mexico and in, in, in the U.S. So it was symbolic. And I was trying to find the two places that, that connect, but unfortunately it happens everywhere. So I just found a route that covered Mexico that it connects the Caribbean, which is, you know, Caribbean, South America, Central America, Mexico, and a route to the U.S. that is not necessarily that, it, you know, all human trafficking victims are moved, but it does happen. So I follow human trafficking route and I said, let's get to Washington, D.C. to kind of, you know, say, connect both countries. And then I heard the, the the percentage of the triathlon because, you know, according to the Guinness World Record rule, it was 3% swimming, 78% uh, cycling, and the rest was running. And when they told me the swim portion, 3% of the 4,000 miles, I almost collapsed. It was just, I had to swim 95 miles. Wow. I, I mean, I ended up doing 122 because the GPS malfunctioned. <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to go over and above. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, malfunction. It was like kind of like after three days and, you know, battling and, and jellyfish and all that. Oh, my like, God. Oops. So I had to start over. But it was kind of one of those things like it happens. It is what it is. And, if, I, and you still have to continue focus. What is my goal? My goal is to have the record because I could have continued unofficially. And I was like, no. I promised this record to human trafficking victims. Mm -hmm. I went to four shelters and told them I was in their honor going to break that record. I am not breaking my promise. Because mm -hmm. when to be a victim, promises have to be broken mm -hmm. of safety by family members, by governments, by communities. And I thought, I want victims to get used to the fact that when people promise you something, they will keep it. Yeah. So I was like, let, then we start. I mean, in the documentary, a lot of people said, it's like, was that rehearsed? When they told me we have to start over, I was like, okay, well, that was some amazing dress rehearsal, right? <laughs> it, was like, it was kind of one of those things, like, that you can't just, you know, it, it, it happens. And so I ended up doing, but, you know, it was difficult, but the end goal was, this is what I want to do. And I, at any point, the difference between being a victim and being somebody like pain and suffering was 
you know, this was my choice and my body was being used. Like it was me who was telling my body what to do. It wasn't being forced on anything that's suffering. This was a privilege. I love you know? that. I love that because you, you've repurposed your body, right? I love the fact that this symbolism of moving from Vancouver. I am claiming it. It's just like it's mine and it's strong and it's how I like how I utilize it when when it's enough. Who I, I, I how I use it, who I give it to, it is my choice. And it's that's one of the most empowering things as a victim. Absolutely. And I've I've done a little bit of running, not a ton, but I know that there are moments when you're exerting yourself physically where it's almost emotionally overwhelming. Where all of a sudden you will have tears come from nowhere because not of only sheer exhaustion, but it's almost like you're kind of releasing things. Did you have moments like that when you were when you were making the trek? Many things. I mean, I always start sometimes running. It's it's not cathartic. Like sometimes I, I, I learned the list. The, the first time I went out for a run when I couldn't breathe and it was like 2 a.m. And I kept wondering, what am I going to do? And you cannot run and sob at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can, you know, it, I would just like run until I had to sit on the curb and have a great cry. And then it's like, but then you got to run home. It's like, okay. You know, it just kind of like it gives you the permission to fall, to break down, to fall apart. But then it just kind of like, okay, and then but it is not like I'm crying and then the walk of shame or anything like that. It is it is a wonderful. It's like, yes, I am hurt. These hurts. But it still is a wonderful feeling to feel strong, to like and to finish, like, you know, to do something so vulnerable and so strong in the same, same spot. It is fantastic I was like I you know I never felt shame ashamed of like okay I had a great cry I needed that and then I come home and I just you know I will pick up and after that it's like okay let's focus like what do you need to do so that is that is something that it is in line your heart and your body your soul and your body are in tune and it is just beautiful I love it one of the questions I wanted to ask you what had to do with um I read, read a post that you wrote on your website about mental health and I had a personal experience recently with a friend of mine who, for the, I, I was so proud of her. For the very first time, she spoke openly about mental health on a public forum and received a ton of support. And when I was reading your post about mental health and being able to ask for help and, yes. and to put it out there, and you've talked a lot through the course of running, and all of this has to do with things that you're working through and you're, you're pulling out of you and repurposing. And I'm, I'm curious, um, what's your relationship with the conversation today around mental health and how we need to support each other? I feel like we have to normalize this conversation and make it so much more approachable as opposed to the shame-based kind of experience that most people are, are used to. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, I've always known, you know, I've, you know, there's been the mental health uh, in my family from schizophrenia to, to depression. My dad had, you know, suffered from bipolar disorder. And, and I think that's that's a lot of the drinking was because he couldn't. There was you know, a time when especially men couldn't talk about it. Mm. And, um, you know, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress uh, in my in my teens and also, actually, as an 11-year-old, now we discuss it. I, I had a conversation with my mom and my sister because I've always known that I've there was something that I've suffered from, you know, some stress. But I was recently I had, um, you know, I've had a, a couple of episodes. One, uh, 
recently, you know, about in my teens, I tried to commit suicide and, and, you know, was almost hospital. I was almost, you know, sent into, into care. And, and recently I've also suffered, I just suffered a, a major setback. And he was terrifying because, you know, like I've always known, but it always assumed like, you know, watch myself managing and doing all the things that I need to do. And, you know, the running, the, 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 the caring the my family kind of understands. But when these happened, I was terrified and I did, I just did the bravest thing because I wanted to manage by myself as much as possible because I was like, I am giving interviews of leadership. I'm about to, you know, I'm pitching a, a row across the Pacific ocean. I am the ultimate person that is, you know, have have it together that kind of find the formula and when i found myself struggling and i did what i call i pulled the parish the the press the button and the ejection button on the, the 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 jet and i was just what i did is i called it mental health helpline and and asked for help and it was very difficult mm-hmm. very very yeah. difficult because i knew once i set that into motion I couldn't take it back, right? But I did because it was the right thing. It was the right decision. I called for help and I said, I need help and I need help now. Mm-hmm. And they did. They, they, you know, I ended up in, um, with, uh, with a therapist and, and we just kind of tried to navigate what happened. You know, how did I find myself in such a, such a state? And then, you know, like, and, and we just went through the whole thing and, then I was diagnosed that yes, I, I, you know, bipolar, I have bipolar disorder just like my father, and it is a combination of you know the stress, the the where I am in life. I'm I'm going through a divorce as well, so it just became too much mentally for me to 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 manage on my own, um, you know, and try to understand and separate because of you know like it's the perfect storm. I just had a big race in the Arctic Circle that I couldn't finish. So, you know, that's where I go to be able to have the, 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 the space that I need, the mental, and, and I had to cut it short and I had to come. So I had absolutely nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Now I'm injured because I, I wrecked my, my, my knee trying to do the race and then a snow machine fell on my leg. So it happened. The worst thing that it could happen was that I couldn't work out. I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. I had to, you know, I had to stay still. And, um, and you know, my son moved out of, uh, moved to New York. It is nobody's fault, but it was just the perfect storm. All of a sudden I'm isolated and um, I can't train. And that just, just meant that I just had absolutely nowhere to go. And I did the best thing that I could, which is ask for help. And I called my family and I let them know where I was, they didn't know. And, um, but they weren't, you know, like they absolutely rally around me, like my kids, my mom, my sisters, my brothers, my sister-in-laws and everybody just kind of rally around and they just form, oh, I want to cry. Because I really wish these were everybody. I mean, I was actually sleeping in my car. Like I was terrified, Hmm. but you know, and they rally, they all rally around me. And, um, and I mean, the doctor, and he's just kind of like in, in trying to understand that this is something that it is, it is part of me and, and how to recognize how to better, you know, like it's impossible to, to not, you know, like you cannot just w- wish, 
wish it away or will it away. There's medication. There's the there's you know I'm recognizing the triggers to taking some time off. Um, and and it, so it was a very difficult. I grieve. I grieve like you know like it was just kind of one of those things that you know I I I think I spent about a month that every morning was like please please I don't want to have these. Like, you know, it was just something that it was just so much for me to undertake. And then uh, to understand this is normal. And this is what a uh, reality of a lot of people. But I think I struggle the most with my new reality, that this is going to be part of my life. It, and it was exhausting, exhausting, because having to manage it, it is, it's, it's just exhausting until it gets better. Like now it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But until when you are in that space where there's, you just need you know, like when the episodes come and it just, it is an exhausting existence. And he just telling myself, it's okay. It's just a day in just navigating and doing what I needed to do. Um, I, like I said, I just, I've, you know, we need to be better. We love to rescue, but we also need, I am so grateful that I have a family that do what they need to do because he was, I mean, like I said, I couldn't take care of myself. And all of a sudden, they have busy lives. They have all these things. I couldn't work for about a month. I just couldn't. I had to push everything back. And I became a child. And But they, you know, but they needed, they knew that that's all I needed. I needed their time. And um, and I just hung around, and they allowed me the space that I needed. But also, you know, they also were there when I needed them. Um, I think we need to do better at that, at providing the help, the help. The, the empathy, but also being there because it's not, you cannot just will it. It's not going to be like a week or two. It's just kind of like, it's going to take as long as it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we need to do better. I think for me, I appreciate the bravery of, of sharing not only the experience, but like even with my friend who posted recently, like I need help. I, I don't have the ability to cover my medication because my insurance has changed. And yes. I don't know what to do. And it was, was what was so refreshing about it is that all of these women jumped in and like we even shared her request for assistance with our own networks because she asked us to. And then my friends who don't know her are like, hey, here's a resource that I use. One of my friends is a therapist. Another one's like, I'm going to put some money in your Venmo account to help you get through like at least the next 10 days. I mean, this, this community of people came together and it was very normalized and supportive because there was no she didn't come with shame or embarrassment she's like this is who I am and this is what I need and we were like got it we know enough people and we're all trying to just live the best lives possible we'll create a little community around you and I think that has to happen more I think too many people suffer and like you mentioned like you got your diagnosis and you had to deal with there was some shame and some grief in that right and I think one of the things I love is people coming to the table and say, yes, I have this and I, I manage it. And here are the things that I need. And it being a conversation that isn't swept under the rug or hidden or, or someone's embarrassed by, um, my mother has, um, bipolar disorder. And unfortunately she has managed it through my entire childhood with alcohol. And that just created a whole nother paradigm because we didn't have the right words to say. And unfortunately, the words that were used by people in our community were not healthy words, right? There was a stigma that was attached to it. And I only wish then we had kind of the languaging and the understanding that we 
are creating now. I don't know that we're 100% there, but I think that we're starting to create an awareness around it because it's such a, a big issue in every community. Yeah, it is. I, I'm actually, yeah, like it's, like I said, I, I went through a grieving period and now it's just more, you know, I, I think recently somebody was just, we have to allow, like, it happened. And, and yes, I mean, when, I mean, we, we, unfortunately, you know, we, we've seen celebrities also, and now they're being more open and, and we watch, uh, you know, what happens when, when the trauma sometimes is very public and myself, you know, even though it's not as public, there's still, you know, there's times where I, I started, like, I had no idea what was happening. It was just like my brain just, just scrambled and I was just behaving erratically. There's something wrong with you. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> I am. I have bipolar. And it was just kind of like, I was like, yes, there is. But yeah, like, I mean, in the past, I would have been like, no, they, I mean, it's like, yes. <laughs> yes, there is something wrong. But I'm like, it is a condition and it is normal. And, you know, like, yes, it's like, Yes, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Something wrong with my brain. It's just different than yours. That's it. And I'm like, but there was, and I felt this is the first time that I think it was that I was, I felt no shame. I was like, shame on you. You know, mm -hmm. it's like shame on you for not, you know, understanding. And I was like, I, so I'm starting to now be very open about it when people just kind of go, because that is the, the, the most stressful is trying to pass as normal. Yeah, like that is the most like it's it's enough for me to just kind of trying to manage everything that is happening to, you know, to be able to they, when something is like, oh, sorry, like I, you know, like that just came out of my brain, just couldn't cope. And I just went there and, you know, like in, in, in being open about it. But like you said, yeah, we we do. We we call names and we, you know, you're crazy. And I think somebody was just, you know, we, we still throw it around. Like when somebody changes their mind, it's like, it's bipolar. And I was like, I am bipolar. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, yeah, like I have a bipolar disorder. And we still always use it so much to shame people for flip-flopping or anything. And I'm like, that's flaky. Yeah. I have bipolar disorder. What you mean is that person is flaky and is very different, right? Mm, I get so, that, yeah. Uh, like I'm just starting to now advocate for that. And it's just saying I have a bipolar disorder and that is a difference. What you mean is that person is flaky and doesn't, but I'm like, just to separate those two, please, yeah. right? So I, don't, I just don't want to be labeled as, as anything that, you know, and it is a condition. Um, it's like, I could imagine you know, my son, you know, and I think he went through the same thing. He's like, what are you blind? And it's like, yes, that's why you see me stumble around. But, you know, we still kind of, you know, like it is, it's conditions that we all have. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's a beautiful thing to start kind of owning them. Right. And, and, and making it uncomfortable for people who like yeah. to use labels and and languaging yeah. that's inappropriate but they don't know I feel like so much of, of my work and the work that I when people come on my podcast or they provide you know contributing or the contributions to some of my my web stuff it's it's about making people aware it's it's simple and it's an awareness that's required to kind of move us forward I wanted to ask because I know that we you've had such a um I love that you've created these 
practices and the this lifestyle that has helped you move through difficult things and I'm curious if you were to look back at a younger version of yourself what would she look like and what would you tell her wow that would create I mean I I actually you know don't have to imagine I think what I try to do now is treat myself as I should I should have been treated as a kid, as a child, right? Yes. And I talk to my inner because a lot of the shame that comes is my inner, inner, you know, my my younger self, all those things. So, just to you know, to, in, in in especially navigating things that are difficult for me, saying it will be okay, and that's something I I tell my younger self. I would tell my younger self, it will be okay. You know, it's not definitely not going to be easy, but it will be okay because it always, and, and when I'm in a tough spot, when I'm just, I just keep repeating myself, it will be okay because it always is. Yeah. The problem is not that it is. It's sometimes we like, it, it's just difficult where we are, but it's like, so it will, it will be okay. I love that. I, I think about that. I had, I remember a really tough moment, one of those dark nights of the soul where you're on the floor and just crying like, oh, my life is so hard. And just really bad things were happening all around me and to me. And I remember just being like, a year from now, it will feel much better than this. In a year from now, my life will be different. And I kept imagining what it was going to be like once I cleaned up all the stuff that was hurting me. And I think that's one of the things that I have always clinged onto or clung onto was if I can, if I, if I know that there's something brighter on the other side, I'm going to be fine. Um, if you were to leave this earth and you had a few words, nuggets of wisdom or inspiration that you could leave behind for the next generation, something that you would want to create for them, what would that, what would those gold nuggets be? Oh, just, you know, what I would tell anybody is, especially if somebody that is struggling is where you are, you're, you're not your circumstances. That's your starting point. Okay. So don't let those things define you. I am not human trafficking. I'm not rape. It's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Those were my starting points. But that's, I, I, you know, you are definitely not your circumstances. I think that's so important because so many times we, we our identity becomes what has happened to us exactly. or the experiences that we've had. And we are either hiding them, hiding, running from them, or afraid to own them. And I I love that message. Now, you and I are going to be at EmpowerCon in LA, August 31st. Tell me what what you are bringing as far as story. I know EmpowerCon is about bringing together women and men who want to kind of own their past and create really beautiful new ways forward. What messages do you have for people who are interested in possibly seeing you in person? Well, you know, for me, it, it's like, you know, that what I hope to bring is that sometimes, you know, your biggest asset is your, what you view as a witness, as, as a, as a, you know, your, your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Like I, once I own everything, instead of trying to pretend to be normal, like this art, you know, I'm like, yes, I am a survivor of those things. Yes, I do have, men, uh, I, I do have some mental health issues. But that, instead of you know, instead of trying to to view it as like, please don't trust me or anything, make it as like because of all those things that I am that much more valuable and powerful. Mm-hmm. So using that as my you know, I, the superhero, those are my superpowers, right? Because to overcome those things, you overcompensating, you end up becoming so much more stronger. That if I didn't have them, so I'm excited for the journey. 
I am like, you know, I have to be there. Like I said, of course, I have to go through a grieving process. But now it's like, oh, once I overcome these, just watch me being such an amazing, much a much better version of myself. And I'm excited about that. So PowerCon is about that. It's not about not experiencing hardship or not experiencing, not having shortcomings. It's about overcoming them and using them as your starting points and your strength. I love it. I, I believe that so hard, wholeheartedly. I grew up in a very tough situation and um, statistically I shouldn't be where I am in life. Mm-hmm. And I just, I look back at all of those bad things and I'm like, it's about being a better version of myself every single day. And all of those tough times created something really brilliant. And I also know that it's made me a very conscious and conscientious parent yeah. so that the next generation, the cycles that I experienced prior to, they will, they will never have touched my daughter and they will not touch my relationship. And I think that that's the hope that we're both hoping to bring to the table. Um, and I'm just so excited to meet you in person. August 31st, we'll be at LA Convention Center. Uh, please check out EmpowerCon. And I want to thank you, Norma, for sharing your story, for being so open and so vulnerable, and what you do to help bring awareness to issues that are so important. So thank you so much for being on my show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. I love Norma's reminder that no matter how tough things get, it will be okay and that you are not your circumstances. Your identity is not what happened to you. You can join both Norma and I at EmpowerCon at the LA Convention Center on August 31st. Information is on Instagram at EmpowerCon2019. And don't forget to follow Norma on IG at UltraRunWild. As always, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and don't forget to share with your friends. I'm always interested in content that uplifts, so if you have things you'd like to hear about, please share them with me in the comments. You can also find me on Instagram at ms.janetteschneider or Twitter at msjwrites. If you want some help moving toward that intentional life, join me every week on my intention journey. I'm inviting you totally free from my heart to your inbox. Sign up for my hashtag girl tribe at JeanetteSchneider.com. And before you even wake up on Monday mornings, there will be a huge dose of motivation waiting for you. Yes, I will wake you up on Monday morning with intention setting prompts and give you some tips as to what is setting my soul on fire. On Fridays, I'm going to remind you to let go, recharge, and love yourself up with some self-care prompts to get present in your downtime. Intentional living is where it's at, y'all. Until next time, in the words of my grandma, love each other every day.